rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity You're listening to Restorative Justice Ministry in the Diocese of Austin. I'm with Deacon Ronnie Lastavica, our pastoral care coordinator for the Gatesville region, serving the incarcerated and officers there in those communities in prison. And Renee Brown, our director of uh, counseling for Catholic Charities of Central Texas. Uh, I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin, also in service to Restorative Justice Ministry. And we're in our fourth session now of Anger management. And for today, let's start with Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the tactics of the devil. It certainly is in the devil's interest to incite anger within us. It's his one of his tools for dividing us, for us not being able to share uh, common ground, grace, and peace with one another. And the Lord has gifted us, as Deacon Ronnie and Renee have shown us in the last three sessions, with so many good and helpful tips for being able to tell the devil, no, I don't have to go that way. I can be a calm person. I can be an empathetic, compassion person. I can be as the Lord was with his disciples and as he is with you and me today as sinners, every one of us, to be able to move us in that direction of grace and peace. So what are some of those things from the program that you're teaching in the uh, prison, uh, Deacon Ronnie, that can, can help us in that direction? Well, one of the things that we're learning as we go through this um, program is that anger, of course, we have to remember anger is a normal human emotion uh, that can arise and does often arise from experiencing uh, perhaps a violation of one's personal uh, space or norms. Um, You can focus anger on a person, uh, including yourself or an object, and it can be a general experience. You can experience anger at varying levels of psychological arousal. Uh, anger can range from um, um, short-lasting rage to long-lasting resentment. And rage often has a sudden onset and is associated with the perception of a loss of control. Uh, regardless of the type of anger, there is always a stimulus triggering it. That's the first part. The second is a cognitive appraisal that makes the stimulus personally meaningful. And then the third part is a time, of, a course of, of emotional response. And once you know the cycle, uh, you know where you can intervene to break that pattern. And we talked about that in our last segment, the, the vent, the negative appraisal, the arousal, the behavioral action, and then, the, of course, the emotional and behavioral consequences of those actions. So here's, uh, once you know the cycle, once you see that you're in it, uh, here are some things that um, we offer, uh, we'll offer you and uh, to to intervene and, and break that pattern. First of all, it would be to step back, step back from your immediate response to the stimulus. And the question that I invite you to ask yourself is this: Is the stimulus that important to you? Is it as personally relevant to you as you first assumed it to be? So just just step back. Just give yourself a second to step back from it, make that assessment, and ask those two questions. How important is it, is it to you? How uh, personally relevant uh, as you first assumed it to be? 
Uh, the second thing to do is step back from your immediate uh, step back from your immediate appraisal of the situation, and ask: Is it possible that your immediate appraisal of the situation was incorrect? Oftentimes, it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, is it possible that somebody violated your space or norms unintentionally? <coughs> and that's the operative word. It's unintentionally. They did that. He or she mean to do that. Are there any contributing factors that might explain or even justify the other person's behavior? Again, that's that viewing it from different angles. Well, yes, the event happened, but he or she just certainly didn't mean to do it. And I can see it now from a different situation because I, now I better understand what she were, he, he was going through. So that's the second part is, is, is the appraisal of the situation. And then the third thing is to step back from your emotional response. You are not your feelings. And we talked about that earlier, how the difference between uh, um, the, the emotions and feelings are not the same. And you're not the puppet of your emotions. If, if you're going to let your emotions guide your behavior, you're going to be like a, 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 a ball in a racquetball court. You're going to be all over the place. And, and so you want to distance yourself from your emotions by observing yourself and your response. Uh, nobody forces you to respond to your feelings. You may not have control of your emotional arousal, but you do have control over your behavior. It's very important. You may not have control over the arousal, but you do have control over your behavior, what you say or you do, and consider the consequences of your actions. Quite simply, again, step back, um, evaluate the stimulus, make the appraisal, and then emotional response. Renee, what could you add to that what, from, from your side and, and, and from the material that you, that you have that would be, you know, something where we can say, I'm, I'm not going to let uh, the evil one uh, act upon me. I, um, I, you know, we've talked a lot about triggers. I know that that's one of the areas uh, that can be addressed, identify and be self-aware. I know that was one of the uh, other ones as well. But uh, as regards to what Deacon Ronnie was just addressing, what do, mm-hmm. we, what do we have from your side? I love what Deacon Ronnie just shared. That that was such a great tool. I'm going to have to get a copy. <laughs> I get a copy of that so I can use it. So just a couple of activities that that people could um, use to um, address anger. One activity that that I'll give out to clients. It's called an anger diary. And literally, you want to be evaluative in usually kind of like in a day. So what you want to do is have there on this particular worksheet, it's actually set up for you to give examples of when you experienced anger throughout the day. And once again, this is from Therapist Aid. So it gives an example on here of like the trigger. So the way this is set up, you would identify the trigger and then the warning signs. What was your anger response? And then what was the outcome of that? And so the example that they have here is the trigger. My husband tracked mud all over the carpet and didn't even notice. And but yet I had just cleaned, you know, prior to this. And the warning sign before I got really angry, I noticed that my hands were shaking and I was being argumentative and my face felt hot because I could tell I was getting angry. And then my response, my anger response was I screamed at my husband. I wanted to throw something, but I didn't. Um, And I just couldn't stop focusing on how selfish he was, you know. And then the outcome is that my husband and I ended up, uh, he ended up getting angry as well. We argued for hours. 
And then we were both miserable, and I went to bed feeling guilty and sad. And so what you would do is just kind of keep a diary throughout the day or over a couple of days of when you were angry, and you would write out the trigger, the warning sign, the anger response, and then what was the outcome of that. Because what you're really looking for are patterns in your responses and how you uh, what are the outcomes? And so on maybe the second day or third day after evaluating all these different scenarios of anger outbursts, so to speak, that you've experienced, you would want to go back and do you notice any patterns relating to your anger, right? So is your anger always around your husband? Because maybe you weren't angry with your kids. Maybe you weren't angry with your mom or anyone else. It was just around your husband. Or maybe it just had to do with the house being cleaned. So you want to see what the patterns are. And then you want to go back and how would I have, how could I have react differently to this? So you want to go back and look at this. And, and I would encourage people to write this down. Just like you wrote down the trigger, just like you wrote down the warning sign and your anger response, write down how could I have handled this differently? What could have been a different response? And then write down, well, what would have possibly have been the different outcome. So if you didn't scream at your husband, you know, and instead maybe took a time out or, you know, talked about what happened calmly, then the outcome may have been that you wouldn't have been arguing for hours going to bed upset, feeling guilty and sad. So uh, an anger diary can be helpful to help you recognize your patterns Maybe getting to some of those feelings underneath because maybe she feels disrespected by him. You know, maybe she doesn't feel like she's valued. You know, she cleaned the floors and did all this and he didn't notice and tracked in mud. So kind of identifying what's going on underneath. Another technique that I like to use, uh, and not just with anger, but with different things, whether it's anxiety or depression, um, Socratic questions. So thoughts are like a running dialogue all the time in your brain, right? It's like this dialogue constantly, and they come and go kind of fast. But when you're dealing with a situation in which you're angry, you can kind of go through this process of Socratic questioning. And so you would, you could write it out. I, I love writing. I've told you all that before. But what's the thought to be questioned? Like, why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? Why do I feel abandoned or why am I isolating myself from others? Whatever it is, you would want to write that down. And then what is the evidence? What is the evidence for this thought? What's the evidence against this thought? The next question would be, am I basing this thought on facts or feelings? And that's so important. Where is this thought coming from? Is it something factual or is it just these feelings that you have inside of you? Is this thought black and white or is it or or when re, in reality, it's really more complicated. Often we have black and white thinking. It's this way or it's this way. But really, some of our thoughts are just more complicated in nature. Could I be misinterpreting the evidence for this thinking? Kind of goes back to what um, Deacon Ronnie was sharing a few minutes ago. Maybe I'm misinterpreting a, a total situation. And so I want to know, am I making assumptions or am I misinterpreting this evidence? And then your next part of the question would be, might other people have a different interpretation of the same situation? So just like he brought up, how would 12 people see this situation? It's the same sort of question, like, how would other people interpret this? 
you know, am I looking at all the evidence for my thinking or just what supports my thought? So am I looking at everything or am I tied into what just supports my thought? Could it be an exaggeration of what's true? Am I having this thought out of a habit? Maybe this is just a habitual thinking that you have all the time, like I'm not good enough. So are you in the habit of thinking that? Or where are the facts that support this? And facts are never somebody's opinion. Somebody's opinion is not a fact. It has to be, there has to be actual evidence. Did someone pass this thought or belief to me, right? So it kind of goes back to the core belief piece that we talked about in our last session. Is this a core belief that comes out of my family of origin or friendships that I made, uh, the drug culture I was a part of? Where did this thought come from? How did I end up with this thought? And if so, are they a reliable source? If you have toxic parents, then this, this may not be a healthy thought. If you've been living in a drug culture, then once again, this is not a reliable source, right? And then the last one, is my thought a likely scenario or is is this the worst case scenario? So really looking at it and examining it. I love Socratic questions. I I think if you can stop and kind of go through those thinkings, it's going to really help you uh, to get to the core of what's going on with some of your anger. One of the um, alternatives that our course that we're uh, undergoing uh, offers uh, to harsh words of extension of blame thinking and uh, parasitic anger is the practice of acceptance. Mm-hmm. And there, the three acceptances that uh, is one to accept ourselves, uh, to accept others, and to accept life unconditionally. Uh, unconditional acceptance is, is a philosophy and thus a choice. It's not an easy choice as acceptance takes time and it takes practice. So um, here's some core principles for acceptance. Uh, things are as they are and not necessarily as you might always like or expect them to be. Things are as they are and they're not always or not necessarily as you would might think or like them to, or expect them to be. So if you think unconditional acceptance uh, merits exploring, uh, here are some points to consider. First of all, acceptance is not the same as passive acquiescence. Uh, If someone treats you unfairly, you can accept that this has happened because it has happened. Uh, You can assertively uh, change uh, what you can. Also, you accept the unchangeable and then you compensate as best you can when you have options that are less than ideal. Another thing that uh, acceptance and awareness are often infused in present moment situations. So uh, you are open in your experiences, you pursue experiences in life, but you don't have to like all that you experience. It's very important. That, that doesn't, it's, you're, and you're not. You know, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's going to be a part of, of, of your life experiences. But acceptance, um, acceptance um, is not an anything goes philosophy. So if you don't have a license to do anything you want because I can unconditionally accept myself, and then that's not a license to do just whatever you want because I can unconditionally conditionally accept myself. So self-acceptance is not a right to act irresponsibly. 
And the other thing that um, we've um, learned is, is that acceptance includes judging without being judgmental. Acceptance involves acting in a socially and personally responsible way. Acceptance includes believing that you are not responsible for your uh, tendencies towards anger, but you are responsible for overcoming excess anger. So there's a responsible component to that. And the language of acceptance is, is moderate but accurate. So an unpleasant event is an unpleasant event. You think in, uh, in words like prefer or uh, not must, must have. Uh, or thinking inconvenience, not horrible. And oftentimes we'll hear that word used, but it, it, it was inconvenience, but it wasn't a horrible <laughs> inconvenience. And so just um, moderating the, uh, the, ang- the language uh, prompts a clearer perspective of the situation. Harsh language, must-haves, horribles is likely to stir up your um, amygdala in, in the brain, and it's going to set off some triggers that, that we would learn that can lead to destructive behavior. Unconditional acceptance reduces the risk of creating secondary problems, like layering a problem onto a problem. And that's, that's that collateral damage that we, we spoken about earlier. That, and these secondary problems include blaming yourselves, blaming others, blaming the world because you can't control what happened or how you feel. And acceptance is associated with uh, fewer negative emotions in stressful situations. So I... I'm able to do the intake, mm-hmm. but but it, I'm I'm not going to be moved by it. I'm going to be less stressful when I do the encounter with them. Um, these uh, invariably uh, clash with the extension of blame views, and um, you can't logically be extending blame and having thoughts to harm someone while accepting unpleasant situations as they are. So let's take that to the uh, muddy floor example. She practices acceptance. So he comes in and thoughtlessly tracks mud through the freshly cleaned floor. Her diary or in her journal entry, she writes and and knows that her anger response was a resentment response. It, it, It hurt that the man that she loves and that she truly believes loves her didn't exhibit a sign of that love in the act of tracking mud through the house. So she realizes that there's probably some other uh, resentments going on there from some bigger things, like uh, when he uh, flirted with somebody at a church social or something like that. And she's been nurturing that and hasn't dealt with it, and, uh, and it really needs to be addressed. So she elects in an acceptance fashion to not say anything about him tracking the mud. She goes and cleans it up, and then... He does it again and again, and she charts how many times he does that. And it was, you know, once a month, every time, every weekend, he goes out hunting and he brings the mud back in. But she accepts it. And ultimately, at a, on a spiritual side, by denying her anger and, and truly denying it, not just shoving it aside, he comes to an enlightenment moment that says, wait a minute, this lady has been cleaning all of this stuff up for me all these weeks, and I have been a complete and utter jerk uh, by not you know, recognizing that I've been doing that. He meant nothing by it. 
He's busy. He works hard. He attends to the children the way she wants him to, and even to her in other cases. And yet, because he's a limited person like we all are, he just missed the boat completely on the mud tracking thing that really was costing her a lot. But ultimately, by working acceptance, she provided for herself a spiritual exercise that increased her, allowed her to be more healthy to herself, and ultimately was a witness to him. How does that sound? I mean, is, is that a ridiculous kind of scenario or are these the kinds of practices that we can implement with ourselves that even though our natural instinct was to be resentful because we're hurt mm-hmm. and that was all very real, I chose a spiritual and psychologically managing uh, response instead. Well, by stepping back from the situation, she did, her first assessment was was the operative was this intentional or unintentional? That changes everything when it's unintentional. Mm-hmm. I can okay. I can begin to say that no, he didn't mean to do this. So that really does allow that to be more accepting because even though even if it wasn't, but he's 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 his intentions weren't to come in with the mud. Right uh, on the issue of of a, of a former uh, incident in their past in terms of flirting with someone at the or at whatever event that may have been, uh, that's just a failure to uh, a failed or unattempted um, um, communication uh, that they haven't addressed yet. And so you know to to bring anger parasitically, I mean it it follows mm-hmm. that. But uh, it's really, um, you know, it's not an expression of anger. It's just a failure to address that issue, but that that continues to be brought forward. Um, so that's that's um, that's essentially is not an expression of anger. That's a, an expression of failure to communicate. For our incarcerated Renee, uh, so often, you know, their lives are highly regulated. Um, there's a lot of routine that's involved, uh, and, uh, of course, a lot of that is there, hopefully, to meet the mission statement uh, of the, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for rehabilitation, for making them to be a safe individual when they're released back into society, all of that kind of thing. But when you're in a community that you didn't choose and it's constantly changing in ways that you don't get to have a say in, um, there's tension, you know, and and I'm sure tension is not is a seedbed for for anger to uh, arise in. And I noticed in in your notes that, and I think we've covered it once, but it it couldn't hurt to cover it again. The um, relaxation techniques. Mm-hmm. How do I calm myself down, uh, even in advance of even being angry? I'm not even angry right now, but I want to keep myself in a better space. So how do I how do I mm-hmm. put either from anger, calm myself down, or not from anger and just keep myself in a good place? Well, of course, there's, you know, uh, there's always deep breathing, which, you know, as a practice will work. Um, often my clients will be like, oh, Renee, deep breathing does not work. But it does if you practice it correctly. So. It's natural, you know, for us to take long, deep breaths when we're relaxed, but when we're not, we're kind of short on breath. And so I'll give you the deep breathing real quickly, and then you guys can practice it, because what I really want to do with you guys is some imagery work, just because it's my favorite work. Mm -hmm. But um, um, so when you're doing deep breathing, what you want to do is breathe in slowly. You want to breathe in through your nose, but you're counting in your head, right? So you're breathing in, but you're counting in your head. And what you want to do is you want to count for five seconds and you want to make sure that that you're feeling, uh, that your lungs are filling up with air, right? 
And so right now, I just took a deep breath, and I'm filling my lungs up with air. But you want to count to five, and then you want to hold that breath for five to ten seconds. And once again, you're kind of counting in your head. Um, You don't want to feel uncomfortable. So if you're a person that can't hold your breath that long, don't do that. Hold it five to ten seconds, and then you want to breathe out slowly. Once again, counting your your head for five to ten seconds. Um, Pretend like you're breathing through a straw to slow yourself down. And then, um, you know, repeat this process until you feel calm. Usually what happens is the more you do it, you're getting more oxygen to the brain is what's happening. So then that that feeling will come of calmness will come over you. Um, I always suggest people to do it maybe five or six times to get that good benefit of deep breathing. But my favorite work to do with people is imagery work. And um, so imagery work is is really about thinking about your favorite place. You know, where is your favorite place? That place that gives you that sense of calm, that gives you that sense of well-being when you're there. So this could be, for some people, the desert. It could be the countryside. It could be the mountains, uh, the beach. For me, it's the beach. That's kind of my place. And so um, whenever I'm having people to practice, what I encourage them to do is find that, that blank wall. So, you know, if you're incarcerated, if you're in your cell or if there's a room, a bigger room, or if you can be outside and you can look at a blank wall, the whole idea is that you're going to create this picture of what your place of calm looks like. And so, you know, if you're into the mountains, you would create that picture in front of you of the mountains. Maybe it's summertime and there's trees around and there's some rocky edges. Uh, for me, because I'm a beach girl, you know, I'm I imagine, and I'm I'm looking at the wall above Deacon Ronnie's head, so I can actually do this while we're um, here. So what I actually see, I see the sand, and I see the ocean rolling in towards me, and the sky is a bright blue with white clouds, you know, just floating around. And so it says, make sure you're somewhere quiet without too much noise or distraction, And you're going to need a few minutes just to spend quietly in your mind. Think of a place that's calming for you. Some examples are the beach, hiking on a mountain, the countryside, a desert. It could even be relaxing at home. Paint a picture of the calming place in your mind. But if you can't start in your mind, start on a blank wall, okay? So you're going to paint that picture up there. And don't just think of this place briefly. You want to put every little detail in there. You want to even go through all of your senses, your five senses, right? Use those senses. And imagine you how it would be in your relaxing place. And so we're going to do this example of the beach. So I'm, I'm looking at my blank wall or in my mind. And so I'm going to use my sight first. The sun is high in the sky. The clouds are floating by. I can see the sand. The sand is white, maybe a little brown. The ocean is a greenish blue. And it's just rolling in, and then it rolls out. And it rolls in, and it rolls out. The sound, what am I hearing? 
you know, I hear the seagull squawking overhead. I hear the waves as they pound on the shore. Touch. What am I feeling? What are my body sensations? I feel the sun. It's warm on my skin. There's a breeze blowing against my hair. What do I taste? Am I drinking a tea? Am I drinking some lemonade? And then what do I smell? Do I smell the salt, that fresh ocean air? And for me, when I'm at that beach, here's what I imagine, y'all. All my fears and hurts and pains go out to the sea and, and all the love and God's good grace comes into me. That's a beautiful meditation, and it deserves a prayer of gratitude to close. Oh, Lord, my God, thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jesus said that in the same way we like to give good gifts to our children, you also delight to give us good gifts. May I start each day with thanksgiving for your blessings. May I end each day with gratitude for your grace. Fill my life with thanksgiving that will free me from feelings of resentment. To you be the glory both now and to the day of eternity through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Brother, if you walk with me, brother, 